0: half, and she would colour one side, and I would colour the other. And I thought it was really good at the time to draw as lightly as I can, and I found this book a few years ago, and it's really funny, you can barely even see my carefully penciled mark, it's really light. Anyway, this image came to my mind when I was reading John's Gospel this week, because John is trying to colour in for us a picture of Jesus, he's trying to find the best words he can to convey who Jesus is. And that's not an easy thing to do, to get this full portrait of Jesus. But John 1 is a really nuanced portrait. We've been spending, now third week now, so we've been spending quite a long time, but it's so rich that we want to get up close and examine in detail this passage, because it's so glorious, and we want to get into it and understand it completely. And not just understand it, but also feel it, like be moved by it as well. Because sometimes we lose sight of who Jesus is and we find ourselves beginning to colour in Jesus either really lightly or too heavily. How do you picture Jesus? What comes to mind when you picture Jesus? We've been, hopefully you know, our theme this year has been rekindled. So rekindling worship, care, prayer, that's been our aim this year. That is only going to happen if we know Jesus. Last week, I was talking about how Jesus is good news, that you should want to share and announce and share your testimony. That's only going to happen if you know Jesus. John, the writer of this gospel, knew Jesus. So what he says matters, how he describes Jesus matters. And John says, there's almost like two points he's trying to make in this opening chapter. His first point he wants to make is that Jesus is fully God. 100% 100% divine. And it's like, like these two movements happening. So on one hand, he's emphasizing that Jesus is fully God. It's almost like he's an abstract painter, like he's looking out the paint here and there as he's trying to plunge into the mystery of who Jesus is. And it is a mystery, but it's one that blazes with light in John. Verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is the true light. Now, light was a symbol used in the ancient world to stand for divinity. And you can understand why. Imagine all the colours of the world coming together and forming into light, dazzling white light. When we think of light, we tend to think of colour, and colour makes us think of life. God. Dazzling, glorious God. There's a few times in the Old Testament when people get a glimpse of the visible presence of God, and it's normally described using light. And people actually call those experiences or those encounters the glory of Yahweh. We have encountered and behold, beheld the glory of Yahweh. And so the ancient artists, I don't know if you've ever noticed, often will like put like this gold crown around Jesus, head, like a halo, it's supposed to be this light halo, signalling that Jesus is fully God. Because that's what John is saying, that... God came into this world as a person. Have you thought about that much? If you have, you might start to feel a little bit dizzy, like your mind might start to spin around because we're talking about really hard to grasp things. In fact, it took the church about four centuries to fully comprehend all the implications of what this means. So we are kind of fortunate because not only do we have the Bible, but we also have the history of the church. And the church affirms that Jesus is fully divine. And I want to actually spend some time listening to the early church today. Because this is not a conclusion that everyone will agree with. Even John says in verse 10, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. Jesus wasn't literally dazzling to behold, apart from the transfiguration, Uh, Like imagine if Jesus was walking around with light literally coming out of him, people might think, yeah, he could be God, but he wasn't literally dazzling to behold. So there was a little bit of pushback against this claim that Jesus was fully God. The first pushback came from a group called the Ebonites in the second century. So they were Jewish Christians, and they really struggled with the idea of Jesus being divine because... It had been drummed into them again and again. There is only one God. How could God be contained in a person? That sounds like outrageous to say that. And so they said Jesus was a really, 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 really good person. Like that God had given him gifts of righteousness, wisdom, that the Spirit descended on Jesus during his public ministry, but departed before his death. Um, They struggled also, and a lot of people do struggle with this, the idea of God having to suffer. So he said he was a good person, but not divine. A lot of people still say this today. If you ever have a conversation with Jews or Muslims? This is a major stumbling block, this claim that Christians say that Jesus is fully divine. Why do we say that? Because when we look back to the scriptures, when we look back to passages like John, which the early church did, they said, but John says Jesus is the true light of the world, that creation was made through him. This is more than just a good person this is someone who is fully God. Now, one of the implications, like, why why does this matter? What does this mean? One of the implications of this is that for the first time in all of history, and unlike any other religion or worldview, God is suddenly extremely accessible and personal. So if someone asks you, like if your friends happen to ask you, why do you believe in God, or how do you know there's a God? Like, there's a lot of abstract debates you can get into, but really we should be saying we know there's a God because of Jesus. It's not a blazing vision in the darkness, it's there in time and space. We look to the historical person of Jesus. And we say that is how we know there is a God. A second, more subtle and false approach emerged in the 4th century um, called Arianism. All these names are basically named after the person who comes up with the idea. So Arius said... Yeah, Jesus is special. He he is different to people. He is like the first among creatures. He's almost divine, like not fully divine maybe, I don't know, 50% divine. He's a demigod, um, particularly in Greek culture. A lot of people did believe in demigods. So he said, Jesus is special, but Jesus, or the Word, is not eternal. There was a time sometime before creation when the Word was made, was created. Uh, Jesus, the Word, um, the Son of God, was not of, made of the same substance as the Father, and his famous quote is, um, there was a time when he was not, and the church had to think through this, I mean, is that is that what the Bible is saying about Jesus, is Jesus, like, this mediator between God and humanity, like, not quite God, but not quite human, something like other, um, or what does John mean by the Word, like, Looking back at verse 14, when John says, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, what does that mean? You remember back to when Jonathan preached two weeks ago, he talked about uh, the Word was with God, and the Word um, was with God and was God. So this is the third time that we hear the Word mentioned, and now John's saying the Word was with people, dwelled amongst people, or literally um. It means tabernacled amongst the people. Now, if you were a Jew, you'd be tabernacled. I know tabernacled. Uh, That comes from the idea and the reality that for most of history, where did God dwell? God dwelled in the temple or before the temple, the tabernacle, the tent of God. So people assumed that's where God was, and God had promised that that's where his presence would be. And now John is saying God is found where? In the person of Jesus. The same presence that dwelt in the temple or the tabernacle is now dwelling in the person of Jesus. This is a claim to divinity, and so the church said, "Okay, that—that's what John's saying. He's not saying that Jesus is some demigod." And so they rejected Arius' position in 325 AD. And in fact, some of you might know, maybe the Nicene Creed—it's kind of birthed out of this experience and. In it, they affirm Jesus' divinity, and you can often tell what is the point of contention by what they really emphasize, and you can also hear echoes of John. So the Nicene Creed it says this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. This statement has been accepted as true again and again by the universal church. So that's pretty amazing. If you know anything about the church, we tend to divide, but this is affirmed by the Catholic church, the Orthodox church, and the Protestant church, which to me, having such unity, is a signal to me that the Spirit of God was at work in this process. So the Spirit of God was at work as... This early church gathered and discussed this because we're talking about how to grasp stuff and we actually, they need it and we need the Spirit of God to help us understand what does it mean for Jesus to be fully God? But that's the conclusion the church came to and has stood by since then. Sometimes we might be tempted to want to colour in Jesus lightly and downplay the divine aspect. You hear it scarily sometimes in churches. Like they'll say, "Oh, Jesus was a good person, a really good person, a wise teacher," but they kind of forget about the divine aspect. If you do that, you're going to struggle with church because what happens in church, like in the singing and the preaching, we're always talking about Jesus. And you're like, "Why? Why? It's just a person. Like if Jesus is not God." We're going to get really bored in church because we're always going to be talking about Jesus. If you don't get that Jesus is fully God, then you're not going to want to worship Jesus. But Christians affirm that Jesus is fully God and we colour it in. If you are going to colour Jesus' divinity in, it would be completely full, 100%. So that's one movement that's happening in John's Gospel. So we have this like abstract painting. And then on the other side, it's like these earthy colors as well. Because you remember John the Baptist, we talked about him last week. He's out in the wilderness, down in the mud by the River Jordan. And he says, yes, I saw Jesus. And he looked just like everybody else, fully human. Sometimes we can downplay uh, the human aspect of Jesus. The early church is probably a little bit of guilty in this, like they were so busy defending the divinity of Jesus they kind of neglected thinking about the humanity of Jesus. And so an example of how this works, um, of a false approach, was Docetism. again in the second century. So these people, fully committed to the divinity of Jesus, yes, on board, 100%, but... They denied the humanity of Jesus. So doses is a means um, to seem or appear. And they said, Jesus only seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. It was like he was wearing a garment of humanity which he could just whoop, take off and then be fully divine. And again they struggled with the idea of um, the divine having to suffer. They said, Oh how how could God suffer like that? That couldn't possibly happen. And so the early church had to wrestle with this is what the Bible says. And they said, no, Jesus is fully human. Like he eats and he sleeps and he gets tired. Sometimes we can downplay the human aspect of Jesus. Uh, in some churches or in New Age writings, they talk about cosmic Christ and it's like detached from Jesus in history. Or even in your own imaginations. Like, in fact, like we think it's disrespectful to think of Jesus dribbling or vomiting, or going to the toilet, or sweating, or anything else that's bodily, because we're not always comfortable in bodies, and so we think, oh, Jesus, he was perfect, he couldn't have done those things, but Jesus is fully human. So how do you put those two together? Well, the early church also puzzled about this for a long time, and they came up with some different ideas. So one idea, and the picture probably describes it the best, is to say that, um, God or the Logos united with a perfect human being. And it's like they're holding hands there, it's like two people almost existing in one person. And then people began to say, but can they let like let go of their hands? If they let go, will they be then two people? And so in AD four thirty one at the third ecumenical council in Ephesus, it was agreed that Jesus was one person, not two. The next proposal which you can understand how they came through. It's like a mathematical equation. So they said, "Well, what happens? What does divine plus humanity equal?" And they said, "What well, equals a new colour, doesn't it? If you mix divine, like God and humanity, you get a new colour, like a new creature, a new creation." And again, this was rejected. So what did the early church come to after all these like different proposals? And I haven't even told you all the proposals. Like this is very technical <laughs> like substances and stuff. They came to this position that Jesus is 100% human, 100% God, and if you colour it in, it's like holding two colours together. Both exist at the same time, but they're united. They can't be separated. And so the church affirmed in 451 AD at Chalcedon. They affirmed that Jesus was the only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, Inconfusibly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, you get, again, this was a point of contention. The distinction of natures being by no means to take away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one substance, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that so fascinating and good that like the early church and there are people who think really deeply about this stuff and some of you might be thinking, yeah, I love, I love all this history and theology and others of you might be thinking, what does this matter? Why does this matter so much? So let me tell you why this matters. It matters that Jesus is fully human because it means not only does Jesus show us what God is like. But God also then experiences what it's like to be human. Jesus is our representative. So when we look at Jesus, we actually begin to discover what it means to be human. You might remember right back in Genesis, it says we were made in the image of God. So we were meant to be representatives of God. We were meant to bear his image in the world and to one another. But that didn't last long, like that. Chapter 3, we failed in that. And so the image of God became distorted. Jesus is the perfect image of God. And so when we look at Jesus, we actually discover who God is, but also who we were called to be. And this is the most powerful image you're ever going to see, more powerful than any picture or photo or carving or stained glass window. They're all pale imitations compared to Jesus. Do you know the flesh and blood, Jesus? Verse 18. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. It's when you look at the flesh and blood, Jesus, that you see God and you see what it means to be human. We have to hold both together. And I stress this because it can be tempting to be like my nieces. My nieces have very strong opinions about what their favourite colours are. So Rose loves red. And Julia loves pink, and like, she really loves pink. She has to wear pink all the time. And last week, she was also saying she wanted her like, cutlery, a plate and, and bowl to match and all be pink. We can do that with Jesus, too. Like, we have favorite colors, and we can draw Jesus in in our own colors, which is often our own preferences. And so some of us will be drawn to thinking about Jesus as God. And some of us will be drawn to thinking about Jesus as a person or a human. And sometimes it's okay to think about one, but most of the time we've got to hold both together. And John says when you hold both together and you look at the person of Jesus, who is he? What type of person is he? What two characteristics stand out for John in verse 14. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Firstly, Jesus is full of truth. It's a pretty bold claim to make in a pluralistic society in the first century as it is today. For a while, our society thought it had figured out how to work out the truth. They're like, oh, we don't get any religion, get rid of religion and tradition and superstition and just have reason. If we just have reason, we can work out what is true in the world. That's the Enlightenment period. Recently, that has taken a bit of a beating because people said, well, how can you really know what is true? At the end of the day, you're still limited in time and space. Like, how can you really see out into the objective world? We're all subjective. And so, um, postmodernism and theories around that said, we should just give up on truth. No one can know the truth of stuff. Who cares? Just make up your own truth. That's kind of the world we live in now. <clears throat> John Scott presents a third way. He says, what happens if there's a transcendent thing who's not bound by time and space? And they could truly see things. And then what happens if that being became one of us and communicated what life is truly about? Well, that's the claim that Jesus is making. It's the claim John's making that Jesus knows what is true because he is fully God. And one of the comments that people made about Jesus is that when Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority. Not even like more authority than the priests or the teachers. He spoke with authority as if he was God and people wanted to kill him for it. We might not like someone telling us what to do. I, a lot of us don't like We especially don't like God telling us what to do. But when you look at the world, I think, we've done a really good job of it. Maybe. Maybe it's worth listening to God's way. Maybe he truly does know what is best for us. But truth doesn't just mean um, having facts. Sometimes we think of truth as like, all these facts dumped down, and then we learn it. Truth also means faithfulness, especially um, the word that's used here in the Greek. So not only does Jesus know what is true, but Jesus is faithful. That's a key thing uh, in the Bible. When you think about God being with those Israelites for hundreds of years, like, why? Why did he spend so much time with the Israelites? I would have given up a lot sooner. But I think the reason why he spends so much time is he's trying to build a relationship and he's trying to show his character. And he says, look, I am someone when I say something, I'll do it. Like, I might take longer than you might like, but I will do it. I am faithful to my word. That's what God wants to teach the people of Israel and ask again and again. And so John's saying, that God is who Jesus is. Jesus also is a person of integrity. What Jesus says, Jesus will do. Truth for John is not found out in abstract, which you can just fucking hold on to. It's actually found in a relationship. It's embodied in a person. So when we get to know Jesus, we get to know what is true. Some of us are going to want to colour in Jesus a little bit more lightly because truth is an uncomfortable word in our society. So we, we, we kind of neglect that aspect of Jesus. And we go, yeah, Jesus partially knew the truth. Or Jesus knew what is true. As long as I agree with that. When I disagree with what Jesus said, that I know it is true and Jesus got it wrong. That's a really dangerous slope to be on. Either we take Jesus fully at his word and go, this is someone who truly knows something about life, not just in that first century, but life today. Or we, or we give up and say, Jesus doesn't know it's true and why listen to him at all. So some of us might be tempted to color things too lightly. Others of us will have the opposite reaction. We hard and we're like, ah, oh, yes, I know Jesus is the truth and I'm going to defend the truth with Jesus as well and I'm going to defend it with justice and I'm going to defend it with righteousness and people will know what I think about things and what I think will be right. Uh, if you meet people like that, it can be kind of terrifying because they're, they're very black and white people like, and if you're on the wrong side, you're on the wrong side. Thank God Jesus is not like that. I mean, if Jesus, and it could have been, if Jesus was just full of truth, consistent, good, moral, and just, it would be kind of terrifying. Because that means if we step up, like, boom, that's that's it. That's the end of our relationship with God. But as much as Jesus is full of truth, he also embodies grace, verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses; grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus was full of grace—that means undeserved kindness and compassion. It was poured out of him. Wherever Jesus went, the people that were most attracted to him tended to be people who felt unable to stand either in society's presence. Or in God's holy presence, and Jesus says, no, you're welcome, come eat with me, come talk to me, you can be reconciled, you can become part of God's family, children of God. All the images, we collect sometimes all these destroying images of God as stern, judgmental, unmoving, distant, it's blown away when we see Jesus. Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. This is the full portrait that John paints. But at the end of the day, it's not enough to just look at this picture. It's not enough to say, wow, that is so fascinating. Jesus, isn't he? He's so kind and he's so faithful. Like, that's a lovely picture to behold. It's not enough. Jesus should provoke a reaction in us. You know, some people hated Jesus in his day, and they're like, he is too loose with the rules, he eats with the wrong people. Today a lot of people will be like, Jesus, he's He's too commanding, like he's very imposing and he imposes things that will change my lifestyle. I don't want that, and how dare you do that. So, a lot of people dislike, hate Jesus. He provokes a reaction. If you really want to experience the fullness of Jesus, if you want to experience what does grace and truth look like or feel like, John says, in the end, you need to receive. You need to receive who Jesus is. Like, Jesus is there, ready to embrace you. You're welcome. You can become a child of God. You can experience grace. You can experience truth. But you have to decide if you want to be embraced by Jesus or not. Do you want God to be kind to you? Sometimes we don't actually want God to be kind to us. We're not willing to accept it. Do you want the true light of the world to shine on your life and actually have something to say about it, which might mean you have to change sometimes we don't want it. But if we receive Jesus, then John says, verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. We can know Jesus in a very personal way. We can know God in a very personal way by becoming children of God. And it's this uh, animation that really... Um, captures this world it's called Holy Moly, it's for kids, and kids love it. But how it pictures it, when people don't know Jesus, they're like black and white figures that you might draw. And Jesus is, of course, painted, uh, colored in like red, wears a red outfit, and he has a light around his head. When people receive Jesus, you can tell straight away because they're filled in with color. That is a symbol in this Holy Moly animation, that they have come to know Jesus it's such a powerful symbol because I think that's true. If you have received Jesus, it means you're filled with the Spirit of God. You're changed. And one of the ways people should be able to tell is that you start to take on the characteristics of Jesus. You start to be a person who's truthful, who's faithful to your word, who's compassionate, who's learning to show grace even to the person you really don't want to show grace to. And when you begin to show that, you begin to show that you're filled with the Spirit of God, that you know who Jesus is. Know who Jesus is. It's not enough just to like go, I know facts about Jesus. I can talk about Jesus and totally destroy the Bible. But actually, I know Jesus personally for myself. So I wonder today, what do you need to receive from God? Do you need to receive grace, truth, Jesus afresh? Sometimes we get all these distorting images of Jesus that we need to let go of and come back to who Jesus really is. I'm going to give you some space to pray, and also uh, come up, you might notice here that there's a word saying full, and I invited the morning congregation, I invite you, if there's one word that stood out to you tonight, and it doesn't have to be a word I've said, it might be just a word that's been in your head as you read God's word and as we have sung and as you've listened to God's word, then I encourage you to write it up in the Latin school, because we want to visually celebrate and worship the one who's full, full of grace and truth, full of God fully human, Jesus. So there's a word, i invite like you to come up, write it down in a colourful pen, and do this as an act of worship and pray. Maybe it's a word that you need to receive from God today. Um, so Morgan's going to come and play, and then I'll play at the end.